You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gaston Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Again, that is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John today. And uh, we have now arrived at Jesus' high priestly prayer. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at this prayer uh, divided naturally into sections where Jesus will be praying for himself, where he's praying for his disciples, and then where he is praying for all believers in him. And so as we do that, again, there'll be this three-part series. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, uh, my father-in-law, uh, J.P. Zader, will be bringing the message next week while we're in Montana on the um, mission trip. But uh, we're going to continue right on through the Gospel of John. And so uh, I want you to know where we're going because uh, the context is really important as we look at this passage. I mean, uh, context is always important for us when we study the Word of God. But here in John 17, there is an immense amount of impact that the uh, context has on this passage. And so uh, as you're turning there this morning, we will we'll look at some of that. Um, as we begin thinking about this idea of Jesus' high priestly prayer, I want to just take a moment and reflect on famous prayers. I remember when I was growing up, when we would gather together for family dinners, uh, the prayer that we prayed uh, usually would depend on where we held the dinner in question, right? Uh, at our house, it was more of an extemporaneous prayer, right? When my family prayed, uh, you know, the, whoever the senior man in the, in the home was at the time would pray. And he would get up there and he would just pray something, uh, you know, extemporaneous. Sometimes it would be a short, brief, Lord, we thank you for this time we have together kind of thing. And sometimes it would be a long prayer. But it depended, right? Sometimes we would go to other relatives and family's house and, and they would have a specific memorized prayer that they would pray. Every time they gathered together as a family at a meal, they would pray a specific prayer. Kind of like, again, we would think of the Lord's Prayer or something like that. They had one very specific that they would pray. And um, so it just varied from place to place. But what we see throughout our, our world and our culture is that there are some prayers that have just kind of stuck with us. Whether it's uh, every football team in America, whether they're Christian or not, saying the Lord's Prayer at the end of a game. Or whether it's the serenity prayer, which is commonly and frequently used in uh, uh, things like addiction counseling and stuff like that. There are a lot of famous prayers out there. But when we come to the scriptures, what we find is that there is no shortage of great and inspiring prayers in the Bible. If we go back to Exodus 32, verses 9 through 14, we see Moses coming and praying before the Lord. Again, Exodus 32, 9 through 14. I'm going to read it for you. You don't have to turn there. But I want you to understand what is happening. Moses here is praying before the Lord, and he is asking the Lord to remember his covenant with the people. Verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven in all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Man, what an amazing prayer that is that Moses is praying there. And we recognize that the Lord didn't relent from this disaster uh, because Moses is so convincing in this moment. We know that the Lord is good and gracious and sovereign. And so he had ordained this uh, even before it came to pass. But this prayer here, Moses pleading with the Lord, we can hear the emotion, we can hear the passion, we can hear the depth of Moses' concern. If we begin to look at David's life, what you see is that David's life was also characterized by prayer. We go through the Psalms, which we'll find is that many of them are written exactly like prayers, right? Psalm 51 is a great one that we've been talking about lately. Create in me a clean heart. David is praying this, again, deep prayer. But to me, the, the best prayer of David comes at the end of his life. In 1 Chronicles 29, 10-20, we have the, this last prayer at the end of David's life. And this is what he prays. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners as all our fathers were, Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and prayed homage to the Lord and to the king. This prayer is amazing. Now, I'm not preaching a sermon on this prayer, but you can, you can divide it up pretty easily, right? We see David here is praying this deep prayer where he recognizes God's goodness and his sovereignty over all. We see where David recognizes that everything is the Lord's. And then he, he begs the Lord, keep these purposes in my people's heart. Let them always chase after you. Let them always freely and joyously Praise you, and then he prays for his son. Again, we can hear the emotion and the passion and the power in this prayer. Another famous prayer is the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, This is probably better described as the model prayer 
Because we remember Jesus begins by saying, when you pray, pray like this. And then he gives them this prayer of the Lord. Our Father, hallowed be thy name, right? He's teaching them how to pray. But today, the prayer that we come to in John 17, this high priestly prayer, uh, this is a prayer that John MacArthur has called the real Lord's Prayer. Because here, the Lord is not modeling prayer. Here, the Lord is praying. As amazing as all of those prayers are that we have read thus far, this prayer here in John 17 is, is just truly captivating for us as believers because here we see our Lord and Savior himself praying. What does he pray? Well, John 17, 1 through 5 says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we have the ability to come before you in prayer this morning. Lord, we pray that you would just strengthen us. You would help us to see your word. Lord, that we would know your will, and that we would walk in it faithfully. Father, we pray that you would just open our eyes. You would convict us, encourage us, strengthen us, and equip us for what you have ahead of us. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified in every word that is said. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we come here, we're mindful of, of the context, right? Again, we've talked about prayer throughout Scripture, but here, this prayer is sandwiched between the farewell discourse and then the trial, punishment, and crucifixion of Jesus. And so, what we find is that it's in an interesting place. It's positioned very neatly here. And so often, we come to this prayer, and I think that what we do is we begin to read our emotions into this prayer, which is always a no-no. We don't want to read anything into the text. Rather, we want to see what the text is telling us. And so what happens, I think, a lot of times is I see many people who will talk about this prayer, and when we talk about it, they'll say, well, that's just so gloomy. It's dark. It's broody was a word that someone used with me one time. And what I want to share with you is that is not what's happening here in my estimation. As we look at this, what we see is that everything about this prayer is confident and hopeful. We remember Jesus' words right before this. What is the immediate word before this? Jesus tells them, I have overcome the world. Right? I've conquered the world. Everything is, is underneath my feet. We, we see here that he is very confident about what has happened and, and the hope that we can have in him. And so he says, take heart. I've overcome the world. And then he begins this prayer. And so I have a hard time believing this is an immediate whiplash directly into this gloom and, and broodiness that people want to paint this as. As we begin to continue to look at this, immediately here we see that there is a particular posture of prayer that Jesus has. We come to Jesus' posture, what we see is that the Bible says when he'd spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus here has his eyes lifted up. 
Likely what would happen, just based on the the context that we know and the understanding we have of the way that people prayed in those days, uh, we know that it wasn't uh, an all-the-time thing where they prayed this way, but frequently uh, they would pray standing up, arms out, eyes toward heaven. And they would do this, again, as a posture of praise, a posture of thanksgiving, a posture of prayer in victory. This is the, 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 the kind of prayers we see when, when we're, again, praising the Lord, pouring out thanksgiving for what he has done. And so we see that this is, again, seemingly Jesus' posture here is showing that he is very confident in this prayer. Finally, Jesus uh, speaks of this in his content, right? What what does he say? Just in these first five verses, we already begin to see some very confident language here. He he says that he has already accomplished his work, right? He speaks with sureness. He speaks with this confidence of what's going to happen. And so what Jesus begins to do is he he prays here for himself in this moment that he is about to face. He, He prays for his disciples, He prays for everyone who will believe in him. And so what this prayer shows us is that Jesus is very clear and very confident about what's going to happen, not just in the next coming moments where he'll go to the cross, but also in the distant future, even today, knowing people would believe in him and follow him. He's praying for us, even in this John 17 prayer we see here. But again, today, our focus is on that prayer for himself. What is the thrust of the prayer? Throughout this, many times we see here Jesus saying this same thing. Glorify your son. Glorify your son. And so what we see is that the prayer here is that the son would be glorified. Now as we begin to look at this this prayer, I, I want you to recognize that in these verses we can learn a lot about prayer. We can learn even more about Christ. And so I want to show you three things today um, from this text. Three quick things. First of all, I want to show you the reason that the Son is glorified. Jesus here immediately says what? He says, glorify thy Son. Why? That the Son may glorify you. I love that Jesus' focus here is on glorifying the Father in this prayer because it teaches us clearly, again, what our focus is to be as well. We know clearly from the New Testament that Scripture tells us, for instance, in places like 1 Corinthians 10, that whatever we do, we are to do to the glory of God. Whatever we do is for that purpose of glorifying God. In the other Gospels, we see Jesus praying again in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he's praying there, what is his focus? What is the the big thing we remember? Lord, not my will, but yours. Lord, your will be done. That's the focus of the prayer in the garden. But Jesus' goal of glorifying the Father is what drives him to say, Lord, your will, not mine. And so if our focus is God's glory, then our desire is that his will will be done, not ours. But if our desire is for our glory, then we are going to continually assert our will. Jesus here, he prays that prayer asking to be glorified because he is God. And so uh, we don't pray the exact same thing, but we pray with the same motive that the Father would be glorified in our life, in what we do, in every aspect. 
And as we think about this, a lot of times we will make these claims, Lord, uh, your will be done. We say that all the time. But do we mean it? And I think a lot of time we say, Lord, your will be done, but in reality what we're hoping is that it's going to be our will, right? It'll be what we want to happen. We say, Lord, your will be done, but we really don't desire it to be anything different than what we want it to be. And that's because I think a lot of us have the wrong motive in our prayers in that we're not praying for the Lord's to be, the Lord to be glorified in our life. We're praying for something that we want or we're praying for our own glory. And so the question I have is, when is the last time that you prayed that the Lord would be glorified in your life? And specifically, when is the last time you meant it? Again, not I'm going to do whatever I want and you find a way to be glorified in it. Again, I think that's the heart of many of our prayers for the Lord's glory. Lord, I'm going to do this and you be glorified in it because you're God and you just be glorified in what I'm going to do anyway. But rather, this prayer, Lord, even if it destroys me, glorify your name. You see, for Jesus to be glorified, his body would be destroyed. We understand that, right? We, we, we talk about this a lot. We, um, I used to do this presentation on the medical science of the, of the crucifixion, and it is, it is brutal. His body was going to be physically just ravaged. And so we pray, Lord, be glorified in all I do. Because we recognize that when Jesus is saying this, even if it diminishes us, even if it, it brings difficulty in our life, we are to pray that the Lord would be glorified and that his will would be done, no matter the cost. For Christ to be glorified, he, he would go to the cross and endure the, not just the physical punishment, but the entire wrath of God for the sins that we've committed. When we think about that, we recognize, again, when Jesus was asking to be glorified here, that he would glorify the Father. The, the glory of the Father it came, again, here at a very steep price for him. And so we need to begin to pray more of this unqualified asking for the Lord to be glorified in our life. Lord, be glorified. If that means diminishing me, then diminish me. If that means tearing me down, that you may be lifted up, then so be it. This is what John the Baptist knew when he said he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist had worldly glory. Think about it. All those people are flocking to John the Baptist. Now, we recognize John the Baptist was a, a good guy. He was, he was deeply uh, following the Lord. He was doing what he was supposed to do. But people were coming out of the woodworks to be a part of John the Baptist's ministry. And what does John say? He must increase but I must decrease. The goal for us is not to pray that we would be glorified, but again, that God would be magnified and glorified in us. And we recognize that as we pray that, sometimes the Lord may bless us with earthly glory. He may put us in positions where we have a, a tremendous following. He may give us all of these great things. But even in those, the responsibility is only increased. Even then more, we are to pray that he would be glorified in that. But recognizing that he does not owe us that. But we owe him everything. And so our prayer, again, is that God would be glorified. And his glory is most seen in our life when we live for him truly. 
Not just outwardly in our actions, but inwardly in our hearts and desires. Many of us, we, we go through the motions and we say, oh, Lord, be glorified in my life. And, and what we try to do is just do that with these hollow actions. We'll go to church. We'll drop something in the plate. I'm going to say this prayer. I'll even recite the confession along with the preacher. But if it doesn't mean anything truly in us, we're not seeing the Lord glorified. It's just a lie. And so the prayer for us, the prayer for our church, is that God would be glorified in us, no matter what that takes. Will it be painful? Maybe. But if the Lord is glorified, that is what matters most. Secondly, I want you to see here the way that the Son glorifies the Father. Jesus prays here with a clear understanding of how he would glorify God. Jesus glorifies the Father by accomplishing that plan of salvation that God sovereignly decreed before the foundation of the world. Now, we touched on this some last week, right? We saw that God, from his overflowing love, predestined us in love to belief in Christ. He, he planned the whole thing out. And now Christ is about to accomplish that salvation. He is bringing much glory to God for graciously and mercifully saving sinners who don't deserve it. We saw last week that he loved us even when we were, were, were dead sinners, when we were filthy wretches, when we were completely lost. And so by saving people like that, he has brought himself much glory. And Jesus says that the Father has given him authority over all flesh. Now this is, this is important. Again, we, we've talked about this briefly last week when he was saying he had overcome the world. And here we see this kind of, a, again, a restating of that. He's been given all authority. Remember, he, he told Pilate, and you know, Pilate pretty much told him, I have authority over you. And Jesus said, well, you can't do anything to me unless I allow it. But he did allow it. Christ humbled himself. Why? Well, the verse continues, to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. He went willingly to the cross and gave his life to secure salvation for those people that the Father gave to him. All who believe in Christ. As we saw last week, this is not based on our works or our will, but his grace. Because he loved us and saved us when we again were yet sinners. But we see this, this great glory. Jesus tells us what eternal life is. He says this is fellowship with God. Knowing God and Christ Remember, as I've said before, that's the attraction of heaven, right? Not the, the, the great things, not the, the silver and gold, not those stuff. The attraction of heaven is that we know God. But it, it starts here. We are blessed that by grace we know Christ, we know the Father, we have the Spirit dwelling within us. Even now, we can have this joy of knowing God. And I, and I love what comes next. Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus is saying, I've done it. And very shortly, he will say, it is finished. So what does all that have to do with glorifying God? Well, again, it very clearly points to the greatness of his love. He would send his son, right? The John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his son? It shows us the depths of his love. It shows us the depths of his grace, his mercy, his power. 
But we also see this here from this text. How, how does this glorify God? Well, unless we know him, we cannot praise. You see, we cannot know God apart from the work of Christ. You can and do know of him, but there's a difference there. Job said this. He said, before I had only heard of you. The end of Job, after everything that's happened, Job said, before I had only heard of you, but now? Job says, I know you. And this is a very different situation. If Christ did not do this work, we would all be helpless and hopelessly lost. But because he did, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will worship him for all eternity. Because of what Christ did, people from then on praise him. We, we gather right every Sunday to sing his praises, to, to glorify him because of what he has done. This is what uh, John Piper famously said, that the missions exist because worship doesn't. Right, The purpose of going and sharing the gospel with people is that they will glorify the Lord alongside us. We share the gospel so that more people will glorify the Lord. They'll be saved from their sins and they will sing praises to him for eternity. The Bible tells us the angels, man, they, they have a blast when someone is saved. Why? Because it brings glory to God. Every time the Lord saves someone, man, it points to how good he is because we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. He graciously gives it. And so the way the Son glorifies the Father, I mean, we should be praying and we should be seeking to share that message with those around us. We should be praying that people will hear the message and believe so that we will see them come to glorify God as well. Thirdly, this morning, I want to show you the type of glory the Son will receive here in John 17. Verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is asking that the Father glorify him in heaven and that he have the glory they shared before the world existed. Now, we remember back a long time ago when we started this series, back in John 1.1. In the opening of John, what we see is that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John 1.3 says everything that was made or created was created and made through Him. And apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. And this is referring to Christ. Colossians tells us everything was made by and through and for Christ. And so Christ will receive the glory he rightly deserves as creator and as God. Before the foundation of the world, he received glory as God. But what we see here is that also because of the work he has done on the cross, because of his redeeming us, he also receives the glory of a redeemer. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 speaks of this. It says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, if you go back before that, it says that he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And that is why God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name. What is the purpose? The very end. To the glory of of God the Father. We think about this name that is above every name. We think about the greatness and the goodness of Jesus because of what he has done. He occupies a unique place that we should glorify him. And John here, as he's writing about this, right? John is he's writing this, but at that moment when Jesus is praying it, probably didn't realize that he would get to see some of this. The disciples we know saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And then for John specifically, he is blessed that he would see this in an even fuller extent in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is 14 verses long, but it speaks very clearly about this. Listen to Revelation 5. The same John who wrote those words in John 17 writes here in John, I mean in Revelation 5. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. What a scene. What is the occasion? What's the reason? We see here that Jesus occupies this unique place. Jesus is glorified because he did what no one else could do. Redeem his people. 
See, it had to be a man, but a man couldn't do it. So it had to be God. Jesus, as truly God and truly man, is the only one who could save us. And because of his unique position and the uniqueness of who he is, he's the only one who could do it. And because of that, he receives a unique glory that we will be singing to, as we see here, forever. As we think about this prayer here in John 17, what does this mean for us? Well, very clearly at the beginning, we see that we are to pray that the Lord would be glorified in our life. And so truly, I ask you, as people, as a church, go home and seriously spend some time reflecting on asking the Lord to be glorified in your life. Not giving Him directives and then asking Him to be glorified in it, but truly asking the Lord, how can you best be glorified in my life? And Lord, be glorified in my life. Lead me wherever you want me to go. Tell me to do what you want me to do. I'm not giving you a mandate. We, we always want to do this. We want to put the qualifiers in the in box on where God can send us and what God can do in our life and what He has called us to. But this, this call to glorify God in our life is, again, it's not qualified. That means there's no restriction. And so our prayers shouldn't have any either. Lord, be glorified in my life no matter what that looks like. Because at the end, that is worth more than anything. But we also need to know from this that that cannot happen, again, apart from being saved by Christ. We, we, we cannot glorify God in our life apart from Christ. And so the, the clear and clarion call of Scripture for, for those who are not saved is to repent of your sins and to follow Him. To believe in Christ and be saved. Because we do recognize that in eternity, he will be glorified in everyone. He'll be glorified by those who believe, again, for their belief and their worship for all eternity, but he will also be glorified in those who don't, in that he will rightly and justly punish the wicked for all eternity. And like a judge who rightly sentences a, a guilty murderer, we give him praise and glory for rightly sentencing and dealing with the wickedness of this world. And so what we see is this, is that God will be glorified, either by you believing now or by, again, just punishment for eternity. And so the prayer for us, the, the thing that we are saying this morning is glorify him today by believing the gospel and walking through your life for him. We talked a lot over the last few weeks as we close here about prayer in, in the name of Jesus. Now really what we're doing is we're praying uh, in line with the will of God. Because we recognize the will of the Lord is that he be glorified. When we pray, Lord, be glorified, we recognize that is 100% the will of God. And he will do it. If we ask the Lord to be glorified, man, we know that's a prayer he will answer. And so friends, church, we... Again, this is what we talk about. This is what we put on our billboards and our ads and all that stuff. That, that we want to glorify God and lead others to do the same. 
let's seriously pray about it. Let's seriously see it happen here. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you today, and Lord, we do pray that you would be glorified in our life. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our church. Lord, no matter what it takes, we ask you to have your will be done. Lord, we know that you are good and gracious. We've seen evidence of that here today in baptism. Lord, we have seen it in our own lives. Father, your word tells us how from the beginning of history, you have been faithful to keep your promises. And Lord, we praise you for that. You deserve all honor and all glory. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to worship you in a way that you deserve. Father, call the lost to yourself. Strengthen the believers. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.